Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. This is part two of our episode covering Marsha P. Johnson. In the last episode, we discussed all that she did in the community as an advocate and an activist for LGBTQ rights. And then we discussed her immediate family and what happened to them. This week, we're getting into her tree. So enjoy. Okay, it's time to climb the tree. I have this really bad habit, everyone, of as I'm writing things up, I find myself researching again, like I've already done the research. So some of the stuff that I'm going to be sharing with y'all, I just found last night and this morning, (laughs) this took me hours to write. It shouldn't have taken me hours to write, but it's because I kept going, Ooh, let me go look this up because I would have new ideas on how to research the puzzle. Well, and you know, genealogy can be such a rabbit hole too. Because, yeah, well, you know, yeah. like when we're talking about different people, then some of us like, wait, we're talking about the California gold rush years. We need to talk about the California gold rush because you need right. the context. Exactly. You know, people's decisions make sense once you understand the context. The context is huge. So we're going to start with Marsha's mother's family, the Claibornes. After researching the paternal line, <laughs> well, we'll get there at the end because I thought this line would be a little easier, although no less interesting. At least with this side, I have more documentation on what I'm going to talk about. Um, And I will say that the records in Virginia are pretty amazing compared to Mississippi, although it's not hard to be awful more off. I mean, it would be really difficult to be more awful than the records in Mississippi when it comes to researching African-American families. This is a state that believed or believes in keeping records for all people, even the enslaved at the time. Well, for the most part, some records were at the discretion of enslavers and the county, so it wasn't a perfect system, and we'll get there in a minute. So born in Elizabeth, New Jersey in 1910, Alberta was the fifth child of six and one of five daughters born to Charles Claiborne and his wife, Lizzie J. Jones. Her parents were from Dinwiddie County, Virginia, and they had married there in March 1898, both at the age of 19. They would leave Virginia sometime after August 1900 and before 1903 to settle in Union County, New Jersey where many of their descendants still remain. While Charles was unable to read or write, his wife Lizzie could do both, and they made sure all their children learned and made sure they all attended school. But I did wonder what motivated Charles and Lizzie to leave Virginia and go to New Jersey. I mean, I could see them leaving the South in general with the Jim Crow laws, but was there another reason? Do you know, Al? No, I I do not know. I do not know. Well, I found an interesting paper entitled Afro-Americans in New Jersey, a short history. It was published in 1988 by Giles R. Wright for the New Jersey Historical Commission. I hoped this paper might tell us more. While it didn't speak to the Claiborne family directly, it did give some insight to what was happening in New Jersey at the time. According to Wright, the number of Black New Jerseyans tripled between 1870 and 1910. In 1910, 58% of Black New Jerseyans were born in other states, and most lived in urban areas of the state, like Elizabeth. Only 27% of white residents were born in other states. So this was purely 
a phenomenon with those of African descent. Elizabeth was one of the areas that saw a lot of growth at this time with new Black residents. And socially, moving to New Jersey became a home for these residents who helped create their own communities. I mean, naturally, first through their churches, but also by establishing Black YMCAs and YWCAs, as well as Black fraternal orders. Women's social clubs were created, as well as the New Jersey Federation of Colored Women's Clubs. And and they kept creating more and more because it was a large population and they made their own community, which they probably had to do on their own because, you know, people sometimes think of the North as being, oh, well, that's not where the racists are. That was the union, but they're still racist up there. And they were definitely racist at that time. While they weren't necessarily dealing with the Jim Crow South style racism, they still had to deal with the racist in New Jersey. It's not like they magically disappear. (laughs) Now, the racism was mostly exhibited through who got what jobs and other opportunities. And at a certain point, I believe it was starting around 1890, the community started to build separate schools. Like, oh, let's build a black school. They weren't naturally segregated at the time, but they kind of started to segregate as more and more Black people came to New Jersey. But when it came to jobs, Black employees were deemed unworthy of skilled labor and left to jobs as laborers, delivery people, servants, laundresses, and so on. So the fact that Malcolm and Alberta's kids did so well for themselves afterwards is a real tribute to them and and their emphasis on education for their children. Now, I did find this interesting. The state of New Jersey passed civil rights legislation in 1884, guaranteeing every male, regardless of color, the right to serve on a jury, as well as equal access to public services. Now, the law was violated time and again and barely enforced by 1910, but was still better than states like Virginia. Then, as we discussed on um, previous episodes of Summers, the Great Northward Migration began, and the situation continued to improve for the Black population, albeit with pushback from many white residents. Anyhow, this article is pretty great, um, and I'm going to link it on the website so anybody who wants to read it can. Okay, the Claibornes seem to fit at least one part of what I just shared. Charles worked as a laborer at a chemical plant by 1920, and he wasn't the only one in the home working. Lizzie worked as a housekeeper for a private family. While I couldn't find them in the 1930 census, I did find them in the city directory living at 1300 Lincoln Street, at which time Charles now worked as a gardener. And I've got to tell you, the city directory can be a great tool for knowing where people lived, especially when you can't locate them in other typical sources. But it turns out the Elizabeth, New Jersey city directory was extra special. It was there that I learned when Charles and Lizzie died because it was listed in the directory. Like the, yeah, it was crazy. Wow. And I'll have a picture of that on the website so you can see how it was listed. But Charles died at age 64 on December 2nd, 1941, and Lizzie at age 72, July 4th, 1951. All of their children would marry and have kids except for one, their oldest daughter, Dora, who married Thomas Chalmers Hicks, but had no children. However, I believe she was your family historian, correct, Al? That is correct. Aunt Dora was the family historian. And she lived a really long life. She, she died at age 97 in 1996. Correct. That's true. So did she have any family stories she'd like to share with all the kids? Once again, it, it, it really hurts me to say this, but I was young. 
even at the family meetings, you know, the, the, the elders would get together and tell their stories and stuff like that. I, I wasn't interested in hearing these stories. You know what I mean? I wanted to hang out with the kids and running and playing mm-hmm. and doing all that. So it really hurts me that I didn't learn more from her. I could have learned a lot. I could have filled a lot of holes if I would have sat down and talked to my aunt Dora. And I spent a lot of time. I used to go to her house when she was in her 70s and 80s and, and stay with her. I would be like her caretaker for a little while. So I spent a lot of time with her, but I did not get the information I should have gotten. I, I really regret that. Well, I, I totally understand you because, I mean, even though both of my grandparents were into genealogy, my grandpa used to share stories about his time in the war, World, world War II, and I would just mm-hmm. kind of humor him. Uh-huh. And now I wish I could ask all those questions. So for anybody who's listening, if you're not <laughs> into genealogy yet, at least share, save some of the stories that your family members tell you because you will want those at some point. Mm-hmm. Just, just and, from and- your elders. <laughs> You, and we all need to know our history, right? And that's how that history gets shared. Even if sometimes the details get smudged or it's not the whole truth necessarily. Right. <laughs> but, you know, this is our history, you know? Yep. Um, so, you know, what's interesting, I just looked it up, the the address, 1300 Lincoln Avenue that you just shared, mm-hmm. that house is still there. Yeah. And, um, and it's across the street from this little church. So, I mean, it looks like a cute little neighborhood. So anyway, just my two cents. That's one of the things I love to do. And I don't know why it is, but I, one of a friend of the show, Julie Dixon Jackson, she also does this. I found out is I will Google the address where people lived just so I can see the neighborhood and where, what their house might look like, even though most Mm -hmm. more times than not the house isn't there anymore. There's like a parking lot or something, but it's really cool. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's because we're nosy, Denise. It's okay. That's probably true. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm going to go going back much further was a challenge, but I did it on this maternal line, at least one generation back. Lizzie Jones, Marsha's grandmother, Al's great grandmother was born in Dinwiddie County, Virginia to Handy Jones and Sarah Williams. She was possibly the youngest of seven children. I'm not sure because it's quite possible there were more (laughs) that I couldn't find. This was not an easy family to track. I mean, the last thing Jones should clue you in why. Um, due to hard to read records, like as in the copies were just awful, I may get some of the names wrong, but her siblings were Henry, Muggy, Lisa, Mary Ann, Thomas, and Violet. At the point where I stopped researching, I found only one of her siblings came north. The rest had stayed in Virginia. The one that came north was Thomas Jones the one who was also closest in age to her. And he lived in Brooklyn, New York in 1922. And I know this because I found his death record in June that year where he died of cerebral hemorrhage. Now there was a note next to the cause of death saying recurrent. So that's kind of scary. Before he died, Thomas worked as a longshoreman and had no family that I could find. He was 52. Now Handy and Sarah would have likely been born into slavery. I can find no evidence that they were free before the end of the Civil War, although it's possible. While I think Sarah, who was born around 1840, originated in Dinwiddie, her husband Handy likely did not. I found him in the 1870 census working as a farm laborer. While I can't be certain, I think he likely worked for the man he lived next to on the census, one William Talley, age 73, who had a very large plantation in Red Oak, Virginia. Now, I tried to find the family in 1880, 
with no success. So I don't know when Handy died, but Sarah passed away in 1893 in her early 50s. I don't know much more than that with the Jones family. So let's go to the Claibornes and, and finish up there. So Charles Claiborne was one of five children born to his mother, Dorcas Claiborne. Who his father was is a huge question mark because as far as I can tell, Dorcas never married. By the 1900 census, she was listed as a widow, but could never find evidence of a marriage or a spouse, not even a man in her life, save men who lived as boarders in her home. I think it likely that Dorcas was born enslaved, but I couldn't find her birth record. And yes, there are birth records of some enslaved Virginians. You see, in Virginia, birth records of the enslaved people were kept starting in 1853. Not only that, their records weren't segregated from records of white births like they would have been in Virginia, which that's helpful. In 1953, Virginia passed a law requiring counties to keep a record of all births, free and enslaved alike. Some counties complied, others not so much. And sadly, I believe that Dinwiddie did not comply because the only births I saw listed were for white people. And they didn't even have that many records of births for the first several years anyway, when the law came into effect. So maybe they didn't have people to do it. I don't know. What I do know are the names of her parents, Fred Claiborne and Emmeline Johnson or Emmeline Goodwin. I saw it both ways. Unfortunately, I could not find information on Fred but I did find some more information on Emmeline, which we'll get to in a little bit. Dorcas had two siblings, Major Claiborne and Emma Claiborne. Now, Major was not his, was not a title. It was his name. And just this morning, his unique name led me to finding him in the 1870 census, living with his mother and what I presume was his stepfather, Oliver Vaughn. You see, Major was listed as Major Vaughn, not Claiborne. And Oliver and Emmeline had a child together, Emma, who was born around 1863. This tells me that it's likely that Fred Claiborne died or he and Emmeline were forcefully separated sometime before 1862, likely earlier. Now, I got to share something amusing that I found, which leads to a quick lesson on not locking in on certain dates too hard, not being like, ooh, it's, they were born this date. In the 1870 census, Oliver was listed as 60 years old. In the 1880 census, he didn't age a year. He was still 60 years old. Emmeline actually got younger, going from age 55 to 45. <laughs> While Marcus and Emma didn't age a full 10 years. In 1870, Marcus was 12. In 1880, he was 18. Mm -hmm. Emma was seven, then only aged five years to 12. Mm -hmm. But it gets better. I'll get there in a second, but this helped me understand why Emma said she was four years younger than she really was on her marriage record to a man named Boss White. Boss was 22 years old, and he thought he was marrying a 24-year-old woman, I, can, I think, but she was really 28. It's all good. Hmm. Emma got younger by 1900 and suddenly was younger than her husband, and I, I kind of like how that works. Well, I've been doing that for a few years now, so I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and Boss died and Emma remarried to Sunk Blackwell around 1907. What's funny is that whoever gave information on the family was so wrong <laughs> in the census, I mean. So by this time, in the, Emma's oldest child was 20 and they're, they're, her, her children were listed as Sunk's um, stepchildren, right? Yet Emma is listed as being only 30. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it works quite that way. So anyhow, I believe that Emma died between 1910 and 1920, but I couldn't find um, any death records on her. You know, I have to say, I don't know if the, the family has a contrary nature or not, but I could totally see my family going, it's the government, tell them whatever you want. You know, I'm sorry, but, you know, it's, well, it, it could be that like, they were just like, screw the man, you know, yeah. she reached, she, it was like, she reached 40 or 50 and she's like, yeah, but I, I'd rather be 30. I feel 30. Okay. You're 30. Yeah. It sounds to me like some census worker was out partying and not doing what they were supposed to do. And they just filled it in themselves. They just, uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, or a and, neighbor was like guessing. Yeah. And just was yep. that didn't know math. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because, you know, let's face it, the census takers just depends on what day you catch them. Right. You know, <laughs> and especially back then, back then, they just needed to know how to read and write. I think I don't think they had to do much, had much more skills than that. And there probably wasn't a whole <laughs> lot of training. <laughs> OK, so now I'll go back to Major Dorcas's brother. You see, for a while, I couldn't figure something out. But once I learned about Emma and I found her this morning, everything became clear. So in 1887, at the age of 30, Major married for the first and only time to Lucy Bland. And they would have eight children, Robert, Leona, Charles, Thomas, Anna, Porter, and James. There is one other child I found in the 1910 census, Johnny Roosevelt Claiborne. And I naturally assumed this was Major and Lucy's child. But he was born in February 1906, but he died young in 1914 at the age of eight. The cause of death was listed as chronic nephritis. Mm. I think it's likely that he had diabetes Mm -hmm. and that's what caused his kidneys to fail. And and remember there was no insulin at this time. Insulin didn't get invented until 1922. Mm -hmm. Now here's why I hesitate to say that Johnny was a son of major and Lucy. On his death certificates, the parents are listed as Major Claiborne and Emmeline Vaughn, Emma Vaughn, his sister. Hmm. I don't think for a minute that they hooked up, but timeline wise, and I, my hypothesis is that Johnny was born soon after Boss White died and Emma was unable to care for him at the time. Hmm. So Major and Lucy took him in to raise as their own. And therein lies the confusion. So I, I think that Johnny was the son of Emma and it wasn't either one of the parents being um, the source of the information. Mm-hmm. So whoever was writing the information didn't hear correctly or got confused. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that's what that was. Um, in 1926, Lucy died of a sudden cerebral hemorrhage. She was 57. Major would also die of a cerebral hemorrhage in 1940 at the age of 82. So nice long lives in this family. Now back over to Marsha's great-grandmother, Dorcas Claiborne. While Major was still living with their mother in 1870, Dorcas lived with a white family, the Edwin Wills family, working as a domestic servant. She was 14. Now Dorcas would never be able to read or write, but she still worked super hard to provide for her children. Sometimes as a servant, sometimes as a laborer, even on one census, she was listed as a farmer. But the only time I found an adult man in the home, like I said before, was when someone boarded with the family. 
It's quite possible that each of the children had a different father, just as it's likely that they had the same father. I have no clue who he was. The closest hint I got was to a name was with her son, Nephis, where I found he listed his father as General Morgan in applying for a social security card. It was on the social security applications index, but I can't ever find a man by that name anywhere. <laughs> so I don't know if general was a title, if it was his name, nothing. For every no. other one of the children on death records and such, the father's name was blank or put unknown. The only way to find out who their father or fathers were would be through DNA at this point, I believe. Can I interrupt you? Oh, sure. Now, this whole uh, search of mine that bring me along this family tree to find out, basically was to find out about Dorcas and my, my grandmother and great-grandma and all that. Mm-hmm. But through this search, when you started mentioning Major and all those other ones, there's Fred and all these other Claiborne that were all down south and been witty. I got in contact with cousins that I never even knew down there in that section. Mm-hmm. And so one of them filled me in on that side of the family with the, the ones that were still down south where you mm-hmm. said only one came up here up north. Right. And he was telling me that that person that, uh, what was it, Nephis who claimed the general? Who, who, who yeah, Nephis claimed General, claimed general Morgan. That that person was actually a, a white southern gentleman who was a general. Well, and I I was actually working with that theory. I was trying to figure out who had the last name Morgan that was a general, and I I didn't have enough time to keep digging. But that's that's what he told me that actually he he was telling people that this general was his father, and they were discounting him and saying no, that's not possible. Possible. Thank you for filling me in on that, Al. As I said earlier, Dorcas had five children, four boys, and her youngest was a girl. They all remained in Virginia, with the exception of her son Charles who was the father of Alberta. Dorcas died in 1935 of apoplexy. She was probably 80 or close to it. Now to the craziest story of all, the Michaels family, which still has me scratching my head. I started with the knowledge that Marcia at birth was named after her father. It makes it easy, right? Malcolm Michaels Sr. And it's a unique enough name to find. At least you would think that. However, I couldn't find him any earlier than 1930 in the census even knowing that he was born in 1909 in South Carolina. One would think that I could find a baby named Malcolm in 1910, apparently not. And according to Find a Grave and Al, I should be able to find him where he was born, the small community of Bishopville, South Carolina, because that's where he was raised. And that would be a big nope. This is why I reached out to Al in the first place. I had hoped he had information that could help. Instead, I might have helped him out or perhaps confused him more, but we'll get to all that in a bit. So when I couldn't find Malcolm under the name of Malcolm Michaels, I did a more broad open search in the 1920 census by looking only for a black child with the name Malcolm who was born around 1909 in South Carolina. And I found one that led me to one of my craziest theories ever. Huge disclaimer. I'm pretty sure this crazy theory has no truth to it. That said. It could be possible, maybe. Anyhow, I'm going to share it anyway for fun so you can see how I do my research and how I I flush out a theory. Because it started with as a legitimate theory. So from the 1930 census, I learned that Malcolm Sr.'s mother was Katie Michaels from South Carolina. And this is important to remember. So in my broader search, I found only one Malcolm in South Carolina that was the right age living in Aiken County, South Carolina. 
Malcolm Johnson. He was the grandson of the head of household, his grandmother, Martha Johnson, and had a sister, Maud. Now, looking closer, I discovered there was a Katie living in the home, but she was the wrong age, like 10 years too young. Well, I wanted to see if there was any more clues in 1910 because I still had a Malcolm and I wanted to see, is it possible that they just listed him as Johnson because he's living with the Johnsons, that type of thing. So I went back to 1910. And in that census, I found that Katie in 1910 was the same age as she was in 19 in the 1930 census in New Jersey. So basically, it was giving me the indication that the 1910 census had her age wrong or was it right? So I needed to confirm. And I went back to 1900 census. And that's where I found that, yeah, she indeed was older than they put her down in 1910. And she was born at about the same time as the Katie mother of Malcolm in the 1930 New Jersey census. So I'm like, okay, maybe I found Malcolm and his mother. I was all excited. Like maybe she's a Johnson. She, she had her child. She's living with her parent, her mom right now. And that could be going on. Well, when I went back to the 1910 census and looked at it closer, I found that Malcolm wasn't living in the home. Okay. Well, where is he? And that's when I discovered that he was living with a different person Beston Johnson, Katie's brother. So it turns out that Malcolm Johnson's mother died in 1915 and Beston sent his children to his mother to live. While this information might've stopped anybody, I still thought, well, it's still possible that Katie adopted her nephew and they went North. So I continued researching and then I discovered his death certificate in 1923. At age 13, Malcolm Johnson died of typhoid. And of course I thought to myself, well, crap. There goes that theory, but nope, I decided to keep looking anyway. And I started looking at the newspapers and found something I've never really seen before. There were probate notices for Malcolm, who was only 13 years old, which I found odd. That's very odd. Tell us more. So this made me come to, and, and they had several notices for a couple of years, letting people know this is your last chance. I'm like, he's 13. Why would they have this? I never came to that answer, but the, it, it helped me create this theory in my head that maybe Malcolm didn't die, that this was Veston's way of making sure people knew that he was dead and that he ran off to New Jersey with his aunt Katie to hide, hmm. kind of like an Emmett Till type of situation. So I'm reaching out to Al going, I have the craziest theory. And I was trying to prove this at the same time, trying to find a way to see if I could see if this theory was true. Well, it, here's the reality. Knowing it was a crazy theory, as I, I needed to look closer at Katie. And it was long after I started digging that I found Al's family tree and got a good look at it. And he had a little bit more information on Katie. So I started there. At the same time, I'm messaging him going, I got questions. And what I found has left, I think, Al and me more confused than ever. So Katie lived a very long life. And I figured he would, he probably knew her and had family information that I didn't have, but it turns out in his family, there's lots of family secrets as he kind of hinted at earlier and nobody talked. There was no family lore passed down. I was on the phone with him and his mom was in the background and she heard me asking a question and she didn't know anything either about her grandma. So I looked at the records on the tree and I, I learned and I verified some of the information about Katie that he had 
and I continued looking. So sometime after 1930 and before 1940, Katie married Julius Valencia, a man from South America. According to the 1930 census, Katie was likely born in 1890. According to the North Carolina Death Index, she was born on August 15, 1885. But according to Social Security, she was born August 15, 1897. Hmm. Uh-huh. So I have three different possible birth dates. So using the information I had, I actually found where Katie applied for a delayed birth certificate in 1942 from South Carolina. Hmm. Yay. The birth date she used was August 15, 1897. But here's the problem. Malcolm Sr. was born in June 1909, meaning that if the 1897 date is correct, she would have given birth at 11. That, I, that seems a little early even for those times. Right. I don't think that's true. So what's going on? Well, the delayed birth certificate listed her name as Katie Michael Valencia, with Michael spelled M-I-K-E-L. It's likely they didn't know how to spell it. They, you know, it was done by sound. Um, her father was listed as Naaman Michael and mother was Sue Rivers. Everyone was born in Lee County, which fits the facts that Al has about Bishopville. With her father's name, I was able to find Katie in the 1900 census. With her father now listed as Norman, mother Sue, and her siblings living in Darlington County, South Carolina. And according to the census, she was born in July 1894. So now I have a fourth possible date. Now, the July could have been an easy mistake. You know, it, they meant August, whatever. Mm -hmm. So now I figured I would find Malcolm in the 1910 census because I found Katie, but I did not. In 1910, Katie lived with her parents and four of her five siblings. There was a young child living with the family who was listed as Manson's. That's what her father's name was in this census. Um, mm -hmm. He was listed as Norman in the census before, um, but <laughs> as one does, but this young child was listed as his nephew, Isado. Now it's possible this was Malcolm, but Isado is listed as age one in April, 1910. He would have only been nine to 10 months old at this point. So it's possible if somebody not in the home reported on the family, but it's also Usually they would put how many months they were at that point or like 10 out of 12 as they, they would phrase it like a um, fraction, but wait, there's more. I decided I needed to find Katie in the 1920 census to help clear this all up. And I did find her. And again, I did not find Malcolm. I didn't even find Isado. Katie was a single woman in 1920 with her birth year listed as 1897 now. So where was Malcolm? Who was his father? He had his mother's maiden name, so this is a mystery. So it could be maybe Malcolm was Isado, and he was living with his grandmother, and I can't find his grandmother in that census, mm -hmm. and it's missing. There's lots of questions still on this. Wow. But I, I, I'm going to say that Katie was lying about her age at some point, because there's mm -hmm. no way she was born in 1897 if that's her son. So she would have to be a little older. Mm -hmm. Interesting fact wow. about Katie that I do remember. Okay. And this, was, this wasn't lore. This is truth. I've seen okay. this with my own eyes. I've, I've been to her house. Katie was a voodoo priestess. Oh. Katie would always have concoctions and stuff cooking in the house when you go to see her. She would have the little packages all wrapped up and have all the 
the, the chicken bones and the, I mean it, it we, we we were scared of her. We were scared. <laughs> we were scared of her. Wow. Uh, that's one reason I, you asked me about how well I know didn't want to go to that house because I was scared mm-hmm. of her. And she was a very dark skinned woman. And she would mm-hmm. dress in the native garb like the like she was like in the in the south, you know, with just the, the native garb, but like she was on a plantation. Really, that's how she dressed. And she oh, wow. would, like said, she would have the bottles with the different colors and the ointments and the stuff cooking. And like I said, the bones of the animals and stuff. Yeah, she was Katie was. Even my uncle would say he was scared of Katie. He ain't like go over there. No one, none of them. Yeah, like I, I don't need to see grandma. I'm good. Okay, so I can say that Katie Michael's father's name wasn't Norman and it wasn't Naaman. <laughs> It was Maymond, like Raymond, but with an M at the beginning. His father was Raymond or Raymond, and mother was Sarah White. Maymond had at least eight siblings. Raymond, Marsha's great-grandfather, was born around 1841 and died in 1923. I found his death certificate today that gave the name of his parents as Mike and Rachel Michael. Oh, and going back again to Katie's mother, Sue Rivers, I found her in the 1870 census, as well as her death certificate. She died in 1919 of tuberculosis at just 47 years old. Maymond was still alive, but I can't find his death record. Anyhow, her father was Stephanie Rivers, and her mother was Nanny, both born around 1838. Someone on Find a Grave put her mother as Amelia, but um, that's incorrect. Amelia was Stephanie's second wife. Anyhow, I did find Stephanie's death certificate. He lived a long life in Sumter County, South Carolina, dying of senility at age 86. There were no parents' names listed, unfortunately. I was like, man. (laughs) Now, while I struggled to find a lot of stories in the newspapers on the family, I did stumble on something kind of surprising. Now, this family was and is very law-abiding, as far as I can tell from everything I've seen. However, one family member ran across someone not so innocent. You see, Al has a Claiborne cousin, Marsha's first cousin, Al's first once removed, on the Claiborne side of the family who was all about law and order, Lawrence Jones. Did you know Lawrence, Al? The name sounds familiar. Okay. Well, Lawrence was the son of Alberta Claiborne's sister, Anna, and her husband, Bert Jones. The youngest of four children born in 1939, Lawrence had ambition. In 1957, he went to college at Ohio State, majoring in history. From there, he headed to Cleveland and got his law degree at Capital University Law School sometime in the mid-1960s. Lawrence would move out to California, and by 1970, he was working for the district attorney's office. While he was busy getting married and starting a family, he prosecuted several awful people for the next 17 years. Then in 1987, he became a Fresno Superior Court judge, a role he would hold for 15 years until he retired. Lawrence died two years later. He was 67. Now, during his time as a deputy district attorney, he prosecuted a woman in 1978 by the name of Maria Lisa Nessel for the murder of two people. Judy Wang, owner of a local motel, and her male companion, Wai-Ying Lee. Their bodies have been found buried behind the hotel Wang owned, the Fowler Motel, in shallow graves. 
Maria worked at the hotel, and according to testimony, her son helped bury the bodies. Like her son testified against her. And Maria was convicted because of the efforts of Al's cousin, Lawrence Jones. Now, Maria went by another name, Stella Goudry Nessel. It turns out that murder wasn't her only crime. She kidnapped a baby, raising her as her own, and abused her children relentlessly, locking them in closets and torturing them until Lawrence Jones helped send her to prison, where she is still serving time. Apparently, she's now in her 90s. Now, you see, the reason I know about this is because the story of Stella recently came to light with a Netflix show called Life After Death with Tyler Henry. Tyler Henry's like a clairvoyant or something. But you see, it was his mother that Stella stole as a baby. Wow. Yeah. I do have one last thing to add, and I I thought it was a good way to end this. This is a nice little tribute to Marsha's memory. And this is from Newsday on July 15th, 1992. And it was a letter to the paper. New York Newsday's obituary of legendary Christopher Street, Black transvestite Marsha P. Johnson was accurate, but also lacking essence. It noted that Marsha was a prostitute and a panhandler, which was true. But the passing of such people is not ordinarily noted in New York Newsday, and their memorial services will not be filled to overflowing. What was it then that made this one, quote, unquote, prostitute and panhandler so very special and loved by so many people? Marsha was the creation of a boy of fanciful gifts and a big heart and possessed an inner serenity and divinity. Marsha made each person feel that this divinity was within each of us. God, then, is not something apart from us, but within each of us. I feel truly fortunate to have known such a person and will mourn his passing as long as I live. Walter J. Phillips, Manhattan. And that was the family tree of Marsha P. Johnson, a.k.a. Malcolm Michaels, Jr. Wow. Uh, two, things, two things real quick. Uh, Lawrence's daughter, I do remember Lawrence, I'm my cousin from California who was a judge, but his daughter was a professional tennis player. Yeah. Oh, I forgot. I was going to mention that. And I forgot to add it to the thing. Yeah. And uh, as far as, you know, uh, Marsha had a history with the police. She would call police pigs and police would beat her up and they would arrest Mm -hmm. her all the time. But I come to find out she also had a friendship with the police. And at her her funeral, I have never been to a funeral like this. Actually, it started in the street in New York. And as we were going, the police were pulling up. What's going on? What's going on? It's Marsha's funeral. They would jump out of their cars and just stop traffic. And we had the whole village to ourselves. No cars. They stopped all the cars, all the traffic. And we just marched through the streets of New York with the help wow. of the police and everybody. It was it was like the most amazing thing that I've ever seen. That's uh, fabulous. Another, another quick anecdote is like you said, Marsha, you know, Marsha wasn't an angel. We all know that. Marsha had her ups and Marsha had her down. Marsha had a good heart. That was the, the main uh, thing about Marsha. Marsha mm-hmm. cared about people. But I'm a little kid. Marsha would babysit. Marsha and Silver would babysit me. But Marsha would give me a bath and stuff. And she would always tell me, stay in school and this and that. Don't let people disrespect you, this and that. But she'd also tell me, I don't know why, (laughs) about what happened to her on the streets. And she told me that she was performing a service on the cab driver. And they had a a disagreement. And the cab driver shot her in the ass. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. And that's a famous story. The cab driver shot her in the ass. She would always say, see, right here, shot me right here. <laughs> and, you know, 
I, I, I'm, I had no idea. Now I know, you know, I, I realized, but I'm like, whatever, whatever, whatever. Okay. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Marsha would talk to me like that. Marsha was very frank and would tell about, you know, what happened to her and stuff to me, stuff that happened mm-hmm. to her and all that happened to you. And, you know, so, so and Marsha was very interesting, you know, very, very, very interesting person. But there's a lot of stories like that. Some I can't even tell, but mm-hmm. yeah. Marsha had a way. Now, you mentioned um, Lawrence's daughter, and I, I did. I had saved this to put up, but, you know, I, I forgot to include her. Her name is Raquel Atawo, Atawa, mm-hmm. Atawo, right. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, yeah. yeah, and she was a professional um, uh, tennis player, and now she's coaching. She's the head women's tennis coach for the Washington State Cougars. Yeah, she played against Serena and Venus a couple of times. So. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's pretty fantastic. And her mom's a lawyer. So her, mom, her mom's a lawyer. I, I found something worth with her getting her like uh, license or something. You have a number of really remarkable people in your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but none like Marsha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're still in generations to come. You never know. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But I think that's it speaks true. to your family in general. Even though your grandpa might not have been accepting of Marsha, they they wanted greatness from their kids without pushing greatness. Does that make any sense? Like you guys are capable of doing what you want, so do it. That make that makes sense. That makes sense without makes hesitation. Sense. So Marsha clearly felt free to do that and still come home. Which and is, one of the one of the things that amazes me most about Marsha, we talk about Stonewall, we talk about being one of the leaders of the LGBTQT movement, is that when I first started on this trek to find out about Marsha after her death, mm-hmm. I just like what, what was back then? It wasn't Facebook. What was before Facebook? I can't remember what. Uh, MySpace. MySpace. My, even before then, AOL. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh! Yeah. And I'm I'm on AOL and I'm putting anybody know who Marsha P. Johnson is or something about like that or whatever. And I'm getting these messages from people all over the world. Italy, Israel, Greece, I mean, Spain. And I'm like, my mouth is like, what? what? And they're telling me, oh, Marsha made a difference in my life. And, and that right there, of all things, that just, I'm like, wow, this isn't just a Marsha in New York, a, a small space in New York City. She impacted the world. She changed the world. She did in a lot yeah. of ways. Well, thank you very much for having me. I just wanted to say this has been a really remarkable episode and I feel just honored to be a part of it. And Al, thank you so much for sharing about Marsha's life and about your family. And hopefully this was a little bit helpful to you as well as you're searching your own genealogy. Yeah. And I I will, if you need any information, I will send you links and all that as well. Um, Yeah, this was great. And Next time, I believe we're going to be talking about Fraser B. Baker. It will be a very short episode, but he was um, the first African-American um, postmaster in, I think it was South I Carolina. I like him already because I got a thing for postmasters. He was appointed by McKinley and he was soon after his lynched. Oh, well, that's really sad. Yeah, because he was appointed postmaster. Oh my God. Okay. I look forward to covering him. That sounds exciting. Yeah. I picked him because I know your love for postmasters. So we have to give him a proper tribute I for the summer that. of justice. Thank you. 
You're welcome. Thank you. And we also, I, we're, we're not going to have this as a summer sode. I had mentioned that at the beginning that we we're going to cover it, but we're going to be moving Harvey Milk down to a regular episode as a, a couple parter. And we're going to be having his nephew join us. Oh, that's exciting. So we look forward to seeing you where murder and family meet. If you enjoyed our discussion on murder and family, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You could also help support our podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash murderousroots. For more information on this episode and past episodes, as well as merchandise, just go to our website at murderousroots.com. And of course, you can also find us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even on TikTok. Thanks, everyone.